To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me. Lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Those are the first two verses of Psalm 28, which along with Psalm 26 are the psalms appointed for today, Tuesday, May the 3rd, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at the prophecy of the prophetic book of Daniel, continuing with the story from yesterday where Daniel interpreted a dream for Nebuchadnezzar that that was unflattering, to say the least, in its interpretation. Um, Also, we're continuing in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 4, verses 31 to 37, and in uh, 1 John, chapter 4, verses 7 to 21. So, Remember, he had a dream of a tree that reached into the heavens and then could be was visible from all ends of the earth, and it was a metaphor for his kingdom. Uh, the kingdom had grown so great, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom had grown so great, but then there was a, a, a watcher, a holy one, an angel, who came and, and said, cut that tree down, bind the, ban the stump, but leave it in the ground so that it can regrow uh, potentially. The potential was there because of the way that it was taken care of. And then he said, so Daniel said, this is what's going to happen to you. Uh, you're Basically, you're going to lose your mind for a season of time, and you'll only get everything back once you recognize the Most High God, my God, Yahweh. So in, in the book of Daniel, what we get here is all this came upon Nebuch- King Nebuchadnezzar. So in other words, the dream and the interpretation that Daniel had given all happened. He said at the end of 12 months, so a year later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? So he's taking great pride in what he's done and who he is, and it's all about him. And no is the answer to that, but but it's a mercy of God. Because he could have struck him down right now. Well, that happens to his son later, but um, <laughs> but he could have struck him down now. But God still had a purpose and a plan for Nebuchadnezzar, for what he was going to do. God hadn't rejected him. He had made overtures at some levels. He had believed um, Daniel. He had believed, because Daniel was able to give the interpretation of the dream and the interpretation of his first dream, he had begun to believe that, that Daniel had served a great God. And then he believed the same about Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, because they survived the fiery furnace. He says, so after he said that, it says, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field, and you'll be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Those are the exact words Daniel used to give the interpretation of the dream. So Daniel spoke it, and now Nebuchadnezzar hears it again, but he hears it as a voice from heaven. God's judgment is decreed, and Daniel had been faithful to report it exactly as he himself heard it. Immediately, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar, so he lost his mind. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. There was a guy, (laughs) when I was young, that, and there's a movie about him called The Aviator. His name's Her- Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes was an incredibly wealthy man who lost his mind and, and began to, he became a freak about certain kinds of things. And, and the, this description here of Nebuchadnezzar would have perfectly fit Howard Hughes. 
that his hair grew so long because he didn't want to cut it and his nails grew really long and he became a a complete outcast from society on his own part. He had been a rich playboy, had done so many things. It was unbelievable. He had essentially his own kingdom. And then for the last, whatever, couple of decades at least of his life, he became this recluse. And it sounds exactly like Nebuchadnezzar because he let his body go and all that kind of stuff, because he just lost his mind. A guy who had had it all and then lost everything. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, what he's confessing is there is a most high God. What other, whatever other gods you may believe in, whatever holy beings or angelic beings you may believe in, none of those compare to him. And he controls all things. He is sovereign over all things in heaven and on earth. It's an extraordinary statement of faith that he makes here. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. Because he recognized that, that he, before he thought that his power had gained him these things, and now he says, no, 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 no. <laughs> There's a God, and that God's in charge of all these things. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he's able to humble, as I well know (laughs) could be the end of that story. And it is an extraordinary thing to see a Babylonian king come to know and believe that there's a God who is in control of all things, that transcends all other gods, and that all times and all things and all kingdoms are in his hand. He could, he's taken it away from me before he could take it away again. And so I will extol him. Now, did Nebuchadnezzar become a Yahweh worshiper alone? No, he did not. In the gospel, remember yesterday, Jesus had been run out of town in his hometown in Nazareth. And now he's going to another city in Galilee, which is where Peter was from. It's Capernaum. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching for his words possessed authority. You know, it's one thing to hear somebody talk about a book, right? So so if you just read a book and you're telling me all about that book and the author is sitting right there, that author knows way more about the book than you do. And so that's exactly the, the thing here is, is that Jesus is the author of the book. <laughs> and so his teaching would possess a different authority from any scribe or any rabbi because he knows the original intent. Now, you know, because Derrida... Uh, in deconstructionism, says the, the authorial intent doesn't matter. Well, Jesus taught with an authority that says the authorial intent of my word matters a lot, and it matters to me that it be treated with respect and that it be taught correctly. There's a correct way to teach it. There's a right and a wrong. And and so when he comes, the, you, you would see that the, the author of a book would have a definite authority that no one else talking about that book would have. And so Jesus possessed that authority. They see this in him, in his teaching. They immediately know this is true in a way that, that, that we've never experienced. 
He knows the truth more certainly and completely than anybody who ever lived. And so they know that. They recognize the authority that he has, and they recognize that it's right. It's not misused authority. No, he knows exactly what he's talking about, and we receive it that way. And then in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So this unclean spirit cries out, draws attention to itself in the middle of the synagogue service, and, and is in fear. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So it's a confession of a demon that's made to, to in front of this synagogue crowd. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent and come out of him. He didn't need the testimony of demons. He didn't want them to accept the testimony of demons. He, he wanted them to do what they actually do here, which is that they accept his authority when he teaches the word of God. And then... The demon had thrown him down in their midst. He came out of him, doing, having done him no harm. And they were amazed and said to one another, and this is exactly what Jesus appeals to every time he appeals to, to people to say, make up your minds about who I am. He always points to these two examples, what they give here. With authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. The authority that he had over the Word, which is a unique authority that only Jesus had, <clears throat> and then... The sign, and they're saying, they're pointing to this. What is this word? With authority, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out of him. All right, so if he has authority over unclean spirits and power over them that they would do what he tells them to do, there are now two options for where that comes from, right? It could have the power and the authority of the boss of those spirits, whatever that might be, or... It could be in a bad way, or it could be authority and power that exceeds any of that. So I can command, you know, Suzanne to do this. She's not bound to, obviously, and she doesn't always do it. But but theoretically, let's say, (laughs) because I have authority over my wife, I I could tell her to do something, and she would do it. Well, that's one kind of authority. And and then there's another kind of authority, which is a a wrong authority to command somebody else's wife to do something. Even if they did it, it's still wrong authority and wrong use of authority. So to do anything unethical is just wrong authority, period. So when I say that I tell Suzanne to do something, understand that I don't mean anything wrong or unethical. Um, So here they see the power and the authority that he has with the scriptures, and now they see the power and authority they have here. They have to make a choice. Is he from the same source as those spirits, or is he from a different source? And that's what they ultimately, some of them will try and say, well, he does this by the power of Satan himself. And that's when Jesus gets really upset and said, don't you ever ascribe the works of the Holy Spirit to Satan. That's an unforgivable sin. So they have to make a decision. Where's the power come from? And so, but they've already heard him expound the word of God and saw his authority there. So they have every reason in the world to put those one and one together and make two, right? So that's exactly the way Jesus appeals to people to make right decisions about him is to to hear his words and measure his words, test the spirits, as John told us yesterday, and then also believe in on account of the works themselves. Now, you can misattribute the power 
And that's that's the problem that too many people have. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. So the buzz is getting uh, deeper, broader, and wider. <laughs> in the um, epistle today, John starts, because remember what he's tried to do is encourage this community that's been split apart by false teachers whom they have rejected, rightfully so, and they have gone out from among them. But, but it's a crowd that, that wonders because that, the, the first group had made appeal to a superior revelation that they had concerning Jesus. And so they, they have set themselves above these people in every way. They've said, we have special knowledge that's not available to you without us giving it to you. And John says, no, you did well to reject that teaching and let them go. And you would need, I can I understand this because I've been around a while and seen a lot. And, and so people will come in and they'll claim to know things. And, and you will think, well, that doesn't comport with the word of God necessarily. And so you're going to have to do more than that. And, but to question the, that teaching and to question those people Sometimes they'll, they'll look and say, well, you're speaking against the Lord's anointed here. I've been given special knowledge and revelation through the Holy Spirit that's been unavailable to you, and it makes me a superior Christian to you. Well, if it doesn't fit with the Word of God, then you, you're not a Christian at all. You're teaching something that's wrong, and, and we need to be careful about that. And so, so John says it's about believing that Jesus Christ came in the flesh and— um, loving one another. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. John makes this very, very simple, and it's certainly not loving to set yourself above the community and claim to have special revelation that's only available to you. And that special revelation leads you out of conformity with the gospel. And that's exactly what's happened. And that is not a loving attitude. It's that superior, a superiority, arrogance, pride thing. And, and that can't be love in any shape, form, or fashion. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Period. End of sentence. That's how the love of God was made manifest, made known, made real to us that God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him, which is a recapitulation of John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's It's exactly that thing that John repeats here. This is the way we know what love looks like, and this is the way we know that God loves us. He gave his only son. In this is love, that not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. A holy God loved us enough to send his son to be the propitiation, to be the covering for our sins, that we might have forgiveness and therefore have life, and, and not a sacri- make sacrifices constantly for our sins. No, it's one time. He is the propitiation for our sins. You don't need to continue a sacrificial system because he's the propitiation for our sins plural. <clears throat> Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. And, and that's the kind of love John's calling us to, 
a love that lays down claims to superiority, a love that, that extends itself for another, that he's already said in repeating Jesus's words, that it lays down its life. And so if we don't lay down our lives, if we don't submit ourselves in the Word of God, submit ourselves appropriately, if we exalt ourselves above the Word of God, then we've proven that we don't love because we love ourselves and not others. We have diminished them, and if you diminish someone, if you look down on them, then you don't love them. God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. So he's reassuring these people who have now been told that these other people have a different spirit and a better spirit and and a, a greater revelation They've exalted themselves above these people. And John says, look, I'm an apostle. I was with him. <laughs> and I'm calling you brothers. I'm calling you little children. I'm, I'm speaking to you as one who is with you and among you. But I'm reassuring you with the authority of my apostleship, not to lord anything over you, but to assure you that we have equal standing in the kingdom of God. And this is John, who, with his brother James, had gone to Jesus and asked to be exalted to his right and left hand. But here he's, he, he's speaking to these people in tenderest terms and assuring them that, that they are one with him, and he is not above them. He's assuring them that these other people who have treated them so shabbily and have now crushed their confidence, don't have the Holy Spirit, actually. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. This sending of the Son into the world is the thing that the others were questioning, that he just appeared to be here, is what they would say. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. I mean, it's as simple as that, John says. And Paul says the same thing, that no spirit that confesses that, any spirit that confesses that, is of God. And so John makes that the mark of having the Spirit. Do you confess that Jesus is the Son of God? And then he says, so we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. Because we believe that, that, that Jesus was God's Son and came to earth to be the propitiation for our sins, he says, that's how we know and believe the love that God has for us. With the evidence of our eyes, the evidence of our ears, the evidence of everything that he came to do proves to us that God's love is great. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world, which is what Jesus said. I'm not of the world. They're not of the world. The world's going to hate them because they hated me, because I'm not of the world and neither are they now. I've taken them out by the power of my spirit, that they are no longer worldlings, as I heard one guy say one time. No, they're not. They've been taken out of that. And and the way that love is perfected in us is, is when we have full confidence in our confession of Jesus, when we have full confidence that his uh, death on the cross was sufficient to be propitiation for our sins, when we believe fully in the resurrection of the dead, uh, the resurrection of Jesus means that we too will be resurrected with him. We have confidence that he intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father now. 
and he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. But we find ourselves in him, and we're so anchored in that, that that love is perfected within us, and we have confidence in the day of judgment, not because of anything we've done, but because of Jesus. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment or judgment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You're still not fully believing if you're in fear of judgment. If you're saying anything that sounds like, I hope I've been good enough, you have not been perfected in love because you have not fully understood the gospel, which is Jesus was good enough and the only one who ever was, and he gives us his righteousness in replace for our filthy rags. And so that's where fear is gone, because we know through the love of God shown in Christ, revealed to us by the Holy Spirit, that he is good enough, not only for his own resurrection, but for ours as well, and for the sins of the whole world, John had said in yesterday's passage. We love because he first loved us, we're just returning what we gave to him. We didn't, we didn't decide to love God until we received his love. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever, God, whoever loves God must also love his brother. He said those things are inextricably tied, and it's exactly what Jesus said. And he was, when Jesus said that, that the first commandment is to love the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and the second is like unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. What he's done is he has collapsed the commandments. Because all those, they're all the same. God didn't say, do this, and if you have time, and if you'd like to, do this. That, that, that's extra credit. No, 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 no. They're all the same. And it's important that we recognize that. It's important that we bow the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ascribe all honor and worth to him, just like heaven does. In Revelation 5, just like Nebuchadnezzar learned had to happen in order to save his kingdom.